This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs, I'm your host, Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs chat with criminal law academic Jeremy Gans. Jeremy is a professor at the Melbourne Law School, where he researches and teaches across all aspects of the criminal justice system. He holds higher degrees in both law and criminology. In 2007, he was appointed as the Human Rights Advisor to the Victorian Parliament's Scrutiny of Acts and Regulations Committee. His early research focused on fact-finding in sexual assault trials and criminal investigation, especially the technique of DNA identification. He's the author of a criminal law treatise and a co-author of texts on evidence law and criminal process rights. He has contributed to public debate on criminal justice in a number of forums, including as a regular on Twitter and in blogs on the High Court of Australia and on Victoria's Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. It's great to be joined here by audio link uh, by a very special guest and a, a friend of the show now, which is great news, Mr. Jeremy Garns. Thank you so much for being on the week's podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Oh, great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Jeremy. One of the topics we wanted to cover with you is human rights. We've got lots of questions and topics to discuss. You've got a lot of interesting views to express and people can obviously follow you on Twitter if they want to see more of your takes on different legal issues. But interested in your role as the human rights advisor to the Victorian Parliament's Scrutiny of Acts and Regulations Committee, I think you were appointed back in 2007 to that role. So what did that involve? Look, I got into that role uh, not because of human rights, but because of uh, my interest in criminal law. I'd been aware that Victoria had a human rights charter enacted the previous year, and I uh, hadn't paid too much attention to it. But one thing that worried me was that most of the people involved in human rights discussion aren't criminal lawyers, but I know from overseas that human rights law tends to involve a lot of criminal law. Uh, So I kind of pitched myself to the committee as I could do the criminal law stuff, uh, and leave the rest to someone else, but they just took me on for all of their role. And what their role is, is to do reports on the compatibility of every bill that's introduced into Parliament and every piece of subordinate legislation, with a few exceptions, uh, their compatibility with all of the human rights in the Charter. So my role is to advise them confidentially on all of that, and if they accept my advice, it appears as a report from the committee, and they do um, a couple, uh, about a dozen reports a year on bills, and about the same number of reports on on regulations and legislative instruments. And so that's a process that happens before a bill travels through Parliament, is that right? So there might Uh, be an impact? No. No, okay. Well, sorry, we don't get to see the bills before they're introduced to Parliament. So it's all, um, all of my work is based on things that are on the public record. uh, And it's before the bill is enacted, ideally, that the committee will report, although there's no... There's no rule that requires that. And sometimes in the Victorian Parliament, as in others, they pass bills in a day. Uh, and if that happens, the committee has an extra role to report on that bill once it's an act. Uh, that's the only time it reports on acts, despite it's the committee's name. Are you getting many are many amendments made to legislation as a result of the reports, or is it generally just kind of noted? So it's extremely modest, because the reality is that laws aren't made in Parliament. They're made long before they get to Parliament, mm. and yet the committee's reports only come out as it works its way through the parliamentary process, which is really mostly too late to change things. About maybe once every couple of years, 
the committee seemingly prompts an amendment in Parliament. Um, but what happens a little more often, or hugely often, is that a few years after the committee reports and the minister says, oh, no, there's no problem, the bill gets amended, or the, sorry, the, the Act gets amended in line with what the committee um, suggested or close to it. So uh, that's the most visible effect of the committee. The other possible effect, but no one knows, is that because uh, every public servant involved in legislation knows there's this committee um, advised, amongst others, by me, um, who uh, is reviewing those bills, that might affect how they prepare those bills. That's mm -hmm. the hope, and that they'll... Uh, in particular with the smaller details, get at least those right, even if the larger policy ones are ultimately a matter for, for the politicians and Cabinet. So, Jeremy, is that scrutiny process only a feature of jurisdictions with a human rights framework? or does that It does actually exist elsewhere. So it, it, there are three jurisdictions which have a proper human rights charter, not, not a constitutional one, of course, just a, a statutory one that's Victoria, the ACT, and now Queensland. But there are a couple of other jurisdictions which don't have any other legal rules about human rights, but do have a system for parliamentary scrutiny. And so um, the Northern Territory and most famously the Commonwealth have a scrutiny mechanism where every bill gets accompanied by a compatibility statement, uh, a whole lot of human rights talk about the bill's compatibility with human rights. And then there's a committee in the Commonwealth's uh, instance, it's the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights who reports on all of those bills. Right, okay, interesting. They used to do it in New South Wales when I was putting bills through Parliament. There was some committee that reported. Yeah, I seem to recall that too. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's right. All the all the parliaments except, I think, one of them, maybe South Australia, have, a, a, have long had a legislative scrutiny committee, which mm -hmm. what they do is traditional rights reports. Uh, they report on things like self-incrimination and strict and absolute liability. Uh, and the mm. committee I advise, SARC, existed long before the Charter and used to do those reports. They still do, uh, but in addition, they report on the Charter. Mm. So what's your view about the overall um, effectiveness of the dialogue model in terms of these different competing human rights frameworks? Look, it's part of the fabric of the Victorian public service and some of the public authorities in that it's, it's one of the things they go to and talk about every now and then. Um, but it hasn't become a part of the fabric of the legal system. Mm. And that's in particular because the courts have been extremely hesitant to entertain charter arguments. Um, they've put procedural barriers that make it hard to raise charter arguments, especially in criminal cases. And they've also, most of the time, not always, been very dismissive of the arguments they've gotten. So the, the litigants who are thinking of raising a charter argument, it's a, it's a lot of work to raise it. You have to do a lot of research. Um, they often end up in a situation where they've, they've spent a lot of money and a lot of time, and yet uh, the Charter is barely mentioned by the court or is, is, a, is just battered aside. Um, mm -hmm. As often as not, the courts reach their conclusion on a legal issue mm -hmm. and then have a paragraph at the end that says, oh, by the way, the Charter doesn't make any difference to this because everything we said was compatible with human rights without further analysis. And that's really doing it the wrong way around. They should be starting with the Charter uh, rather than just having it as a little capstone at the end to tick off that they've thought about that. Yeah, that's pretty kind of consistent with my experiences working in the ACT, where, and I haven't practised there in any real way for quite a number of years now, but in the time I was there back in sort of 08, 09, 10, the human rights framework was there, but it wasn't really a feature of many judicial decisions in a way that evidenced much 
importing of these kind of concepts in any real way? Yeah, look, the ACT has just had a recent landmark. They've actually done their second ever court declaration that a, a law in the ACT was incompatible with human rights. That's only ever happened once in Victoria, in Momchilovich, and that got overturned. But the ACT just did it for the second time. But the, the funny thing there is that the ACT court that did it also struck down that law because it was a subordinate law as inconsistent with a head statute. So I don't think there's going to be any consequence to that declaration because the law no longer exists mm. um, unless and until a court, uh, an appeal court overturns that ruling. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So have you got a view, Jeremy, about a preferred human rights framework? Are you a Bill of Rights guy or are you a dialogue model guy or are you somewhere else? I'm a bit, um, so here's a bit of a fudge. My experience with the Charter, both blogging it and just seeing it happen in Victoria, um, is that I'm not a, no longer a fan, to the extent I ever was, of this statutory model uh, where it's where parliamentary supremacy is retained. I think you either go the full hog and have a constitutional charter uh, of rights, or you don't bother. I think this middle ground is is in some ways the worst of all worlds. It gives the impression the human rights are being uh, taken care of or considered without any teeth to it. I'm I vacillate on whether the better of the two option is the constitutional one or not. Um, I look enviously at other jurisdictions that have, like Canada, that have a charter. But at the same time, I, I find myself wincing so often at the way the courts deal with rights issues here in Australia that I, I, I'm also with those who worry about that sort of thing. So I don't, I don't have a, a strong view either way, except that you shouldn't go for the middle ground. I don't mm. think that's worth it. It's sort of hard to imagine how our judicial institutions would cope in the initial years after the introduction of a full constitutional bill of rights, they're so averse to these concepts being raised, even in terms of statutory interpretation. It'd be, it would certainly be interesting to watch at the very least. It really would. I mean, the, the example there is Canada. They had a statutory charter, the Bill of Rights Act of Canada in 1960, and it was a complete flop, just like I would say Victoria's charter mostly is. Mm. Um, but then they introduced a constitutional charter in, charter in 82, and it's been a huge hit. Um, controversial, of course, but, uh, I mean, there was a review that said there isn't a single aspect of Canadian criminal justice that hasn't been completely transformed by the charter. Um, well, here in Victoria, there isn't a single aspect of criminal justice that's been even affected by the charter. <laughs> mm, you do see it really operating in quite a meaningful way in Canada, things like... Mm how long it takes to get to trial and whether you can get a permanent stay because you're not put on yeah. trial within two years or... Stop, search, abuse of process, everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So many different aspects of the way that procedure and substantive law works, particularly in a criminal law context. So For sure. And also some quite substantive things like um, bringing in euthanasia in Canada and, and the like, uh, abortion rights, which came in via the Charter rather than via legislation as here. Mm. Mm, it's quite interesting, I think, for Australian lawyers to look at Canadian models of things because we do have, in many ways, parallels in terms of our history, our political system, mm -hmm. our society and how it's sort of set up. Yeah, I've, I've always had a bit of an obsession with Canada. Canada. Um, in fact, I did my PhD thesis on a comparison of Australia and Canada on, on jury directions in sexual assault trials um, and I was always fascinated by, by both the similarities and the differences. I mean, mm. one really interesting difference in Canada is they have proper appeals against acquittals where a, a higher court can overturn 
a jury acquittal and order a new trial if there was an error of law at the trial. And that, that changes the shape of their law, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's sort of hard to compare Australia to America because America is just so crazy, whereas Canada's yeah. sort of a normal country, isn't it? Yeah, America's a, a totally alien judicial system as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's a few points where you can draw comparisons, but it is just so different. Mm. Uh, even in terms of their... I, I did a criminology degree in Toronto uh, for a year, and the obsession there was to try and work out why Canada and the US are so different just when it comes to all aspects of crime. Um, it's a real mystery. Um, there's a, a lot of ways you can try and explore it, but it, it, it's astonishing how two geographically close, historically close countries can be so divergent mm. so what were the ultimate findings um, of your thesis oh so my thesis was on it was trying to work out i mean initially it was just trying to work out how do you do proof beyond reasonable doubt in a one word against another trial uh, uh, still remains a mystery as it was you know in things like the pell case um but i ended up focusing more on how appeal courts review what judges say about that issue because it's very hard for a judge to talk meaningfully about the uh, one word against another dispute without slipping into language where they say, well, you might accept this person or you might accept this person. And then they, they run into trouble because where, where, where does proof beyond reasonable doubt come into that? Uh, so my thesis was all on that. Um, I was a bit critical of being too het up with the way judges word those things. I'm, I'm more willing to trust jurors if they're given a an emphatic beyond reasonable doubt direction to then do the translation you need uh, when you're talking about particular factual issues. Um, so, yeah, that was about, uh, I mean, things have moved on from when I did that thesis. So, uh, but, you know, the Pell issues still self-resonated with what I did back mm. then. I'm throwing my hands up in the air, Jeremy, because I ran a case in the Court of Criminal Appeal today that I think I probably should have read your thesis before I did. <laughs> it was just on that issue. <laughs> Um, my, my thesis, my thesis is on Osley if you want to read it, but it's also 150,000 words. It's before they introduced a word limit, so um, you might want to be full on. Summarise it for us. Yep, you, yep. You know, That's your right. homework, Jim. Done. For the next Done. episode. Well, now that I'm free of uh, my exams, I can. I've got a bit of spare time. So Jim's a law student, uh, Jeremy. That's why we say that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Jeremy, you're a, you're a high court expert, um, and. We want to pitch this to you. All of a sudden, tomorrow, you're made AG um, with all the powers in the world to sort of structurally change the High Court. Um, what would you do? What would Yeah, would right. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a, a really interesting question. So I'd be stealing some ideas from other apex courts. So I'd steal a couple of ideas from the United States Supreme Court. One is that I would have all the judges always sitting on every case, not this situation where we just have five or uh, the like sitting. I wouldn't even have two judges for special leave. I reckon you have all seven for everything. Otherwise, it's a bit of a, a lucky dip in which judge you get. Um, I'd also um, take the US's lead and have much shorter oral arguments. No oral arguments for special leave, one-hour arguments for even the most complex cases and rely more on written submissions. And the reason I do all that is to free up time for the court to meaningfully take on more cases. I don't think they take enough cases at all. Uh, they take about half of what they did a couple of decades ago, and I think that's far too little. Wow. The other, the other thing I would do is take a few leaves from, from Canada. Um, I, I never like that situation where, and we're about to head, get into this with Justice Keane, where a few months before they retire, sometimes five or six months before they retire, they stop hearing cases and the court drops down to six. 
until we get the new judge in. Mm. And I think that's a real problem. There have been some terrible cases where three all splits in that situation. Canada mm. deals with that by just letting the judge um, have an extra six months to, to produce mm. judgments after they retire. Like I think Modus you couldn't do that. You couldn't that, do yeah. that here because of the constitution. But you could appoint the new judge. I'd appoint Keaton's replacement now, and have that judge sitting in whenever Keen isn't. Is how I would do it. Mm. Um, the only the other thing I would do is probably have a system where lower courts have something of a say on whether a case goes to the high court. So the Canadians have a system where in crim cases, if there's a dissent in the intermediate court, it gets an automatic right to the High Court, to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I find that pretty attractive. It doesn't mean the, court, the, the Supreme Court always gives it a full judgment. Sometimes they just deal with it very shortly. But I prefer that to, again, what seems like a lucky dip. I, it, just, I, I, it always confuses me why some cases go to the court or not. I still have no idea why they took on the Pell case, for instance. And yet that changed his whole life that they chose to take that case. But no one knows why they took it. It just seemed like a, a standard factual case. But in Canada, it would have been obvious why they took it. It would have been because of Justice Weinberg's dissent in that case, mm. which would have required them to take it on. So I would have ta I'd take that idea as well. Jeremy, you said they're doing half the cases they did or about half the cases. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, I'd like to think it's because they're spending much longer on the cases they do get, but that's actually not true as near as I can tell. They have a smallish number of cases where they all write judgments and they're blockbusters and they think really hard, but the vast majority of their cases are these insipid joint judgments where they decide the case as narrowly as possible and say as little as possible. And so given they're doing that, they should be doing more cases, but instead they've switched to doing less. I, I just don't know why um, they've done that. It's purely, I mean, I guess part of it is that they changed their approach to the special leave, uh, gradually dropping the number of judges who decide those cases, leaving it in a black box where we mostly don't know why they're rejecting special leave sometimes. But otherwise, I don't know. It is a bit of a worldwide trend. Um, the US Supreme Court takes fewer cases than it used to as well. Um, and the Canadian court. So uh, I don't know what's behind that. I, I look at them and think there are seven of you, um, and yet you hear 50 cases a year. And there are seven of the best judges in Australia. They should have the capability to hear a lot more than that. Lower courts do. Um, so uh, I'm baffled as to why they do this. Yeah. Jeremy, do you think there's a basis to increase the number of judges on the court, or ha how does that process operate in any event? Well, it, so it's been seven for a very long time. I mean, it famously started with three and then mm. quickly to five and then quickly to seven. I mean, there's actually a transition problem with trying to increase the number of judges. It gives a massive advantage to the government of the day to, um, as the Americans would say, pack the court if you lift the number of judges. Um, I can't, I, I don't see an overriding need to lift the number of judges. I just think that they should all be working harder, to be honest. Um, they're paid very well. They're paid about twice what US Supreme Court judges are paid. Um, so they should just be doing the work. Maybe they should have more assistance if they need it. The, the US judges have four clerks each. Um, the, the Australian judges don't get that many, but I don't, I'm not sure I see a need for extra judges. I just want the, the judges we've got to be um, doing more. Like I said, if they had shorter oral hearings, not day-long things all the time, I think they'd have more time to write their judgments. Do you think we'll ever get a judgment like Cable out of the High Court again? You know, sort of mm. something that really changes the law and is full of deception. Well, <laughs> you know, that. Uh, yeah. I mean, Cable's, 
Cable was a bit of a fluke. It was a 4-2 judgment. It was a near thing. Um, and it happened in one of those interregnums just before Kirby came on the court, but before Dean, uh, when Dean stopped hearing matters. Um, it was very much of its time and peculiar to its particular facts. I think it's been a bit like the Charter, a, a, a complete flop. I um, mean, that although there's only been six cases which have upheld cable challenges. Um, yeah. And I worry, I think Gabrielle Appleby has written a whole lot about this. I worry it's actually had a, a bad effect on the criminal law. It's caused parliament, state parliaments to move away from the courts in dealing with pesky criminal law problems. And it's also stopped them experimenting. As soon as the High Court rubber stamped some approaches cable proof, they all just use that approach no matter what its amazing flaws are. So I actually wish cable had never happened, unfortunately, and, and I very much doubt it will be decided the same way if it came, if it had come up for the first time today. Mm. So you were talking before, Jeremy, about um, advantage to the government of the day from having a large number of appointments all at once. Is there any trends that, that you can discern from which governments have appointed which judges in terms of their jurisprudence? <laughs> No, look, a, a pretty famous thing about the High Court is it's, it's really hard to tell. It's actually hard, hard to tell in most courts. So, uh, famously, even the, the US system, which is so politicised, still produces judges who go against the appointing president. Um, Justice South is an example of that. Um, I don't see that trend much in Australian High Court appointments. Um, but that being said, I think you can pick out judges who, while they aren't especially political, would only have been appointed by one side. So I think, say, Justice Stewart would be an unlikely pick for a Labor government. Um, and uh, I'm sure you can find a, a, a Labor equivalent to that as well. Um, but, uh, but, I don't, but I don't think that you can track that through to any particular effect. So, I mean, one of the most notable things about the High Court for the last 10 years has been the coalition of Chief Justice Kiefel and Justices Keane and Bell. Um, and they, they decided, decided to, together so often. I mean, Kiefel and Keane have not disagreed on a single thing in the last five years, and yet they are appointed by different governments. Uh, mm. Justice Kiefel was a, a Liberal appointment and Justice Keane was a Labor appointment. So I don't think you can pick these things. Yeah. What so, about the, the trend to federal court judges being appointed up so that uh, you get two for the price of one? Are we stuck with that? Is that is that what we're going to be saying from now on? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm not totally sure why they're going for federal court judges. I, I think it could be the two, the two for the price of one thing could be part of it, except I'm not sure that the federal government has so much of an interest uh, in appointing federal court judges that they, that would be their main consideration. I, I honestly don't understand why federal court judges have become so popular, except to the extent that maybe they consult with the High Court itself, and so many of them are federal court judges, that mm. the advice from the High Court pushes them towards the federal court. But otherwise, I, I don't know what's going on there. I do think, though, that it's behind a, uh, at least one phenomenon on the court, which is a gradual uh, reduction in the court's experiences in criminal law, uh, given the federal court has such a tiny criminal law jurisdiction. I think that's, that's contributed to this problem. If you were looking for state courts and trying to predict prominent judges, often, not always, you'd be picking criminal law judges, you know, say a Justice Weinberg or something like that. But if you're exclusively going to the federal court, I know Weinberg spent time there, um, you're going to get less in terms mm. of criminal law. Mm. So it seems to be the case that no one on the current High Court has conducted a jury trial. Um, 
I can't. I don't know that for certain. Uh, none of them have any kind of prominent criminal law career. They've all had. Mm. Uh, so some of them have had their moments um, involved mm. in trials. But um, but with the departure of Justices Bell and Nettle, um, it, it, they were totally different in their experience of criminal law, particularly Justice Bell. So mm. not having them anymore is quite a difference. Although and- uh, the caveat there, of course, is Justice Bell nevertheless invariably teamed up with with uh, Keenan Kiefel. So it didn't necessarily change outcomes. Um, uh, what's less clear is what influence she had behind the scenes in just informing the other rest of the court of some practicalities of criminal law. I mean, it's all a bit airy-fairy, but you just have a feeling that people who haven't had either a lot of experience as a lawyer or a judge in criminal trials just won't quite have that level of practical knowledge that sometimes is necessary. Just interested in your thoughts on whether you think it's it's a problem for the justice system that there's perhaps a, a dearth of criminal law experience up on that apex court in Australia? Yeah, look, I think every field worries they don't have enough of their judges on the court. So I'm sure the family lawyers are pretty sad that they never get any judges on the court. Um, so naturally, as a criminal law person, I'm worried about the criminal lawyers on the court. But I think that we have a special case, which is that quite a lot of the court's caseload has historically been criminal law, and for good reason, because um, criminal law, the stakes are particularly high in terms of miscarriage of justice and the the amount of litigation. Um, If there's a problem with not having criminal lawyers, I think it's it's not in terms of the knowledge of the judges or their their intellect. It's their... um, being attuned to the practical issues behind criminal law that that worries me the most. I want to at least have in the backroom discussions in the court one or two judges who can say, well, when I did a trial, this is how it played out. And I think without that, um, you start to worry that they're going to produce, uh, it's a funny thing for me to say this, but ivory tower style judgments, which don't necessarily um, provide useful assistance to the lower courts. Mm. I mean, I think not having that practical experience of going down to the cells, speaking to the accused, mm. you know, mid-trial or even on arrest or the, all those experience that come in terms of the the apparatus and the, the machinations of the criminal justice system that happen not necessarily and aren't necessarily obvious on the transcript, you know, or yeah, can't, I be mean, lo- I mean, can't be learned from a joke in- transcript. There's a, a joke in academic circles that every one of every person in law academia says their field is especially complex and nuanced. Mm. But again, yeah, I, I still have that that sense that criminal law has so many different things that have to interlock to work, and that you can't really uh, fully appreciate it from from wholly outside of it. So, Jeremy, what's coming up in terms of upcoming vacancies um, on the High Court, particularly in the context um, of the federal election? And who's yeah, okay. going to have the hand to appoint them? Yeah, look, um, I think it's it's tempting to say something, and I can't quite say it's definitely true, that this seems like one of the most consequential elections in terms of the High Court. Um, and that's because two judges are going to be appointed in the next round, and not just two judges, but ju- the Chief Justice and the replacement for Justice Keane. And they've been a bit of a block in the court, so uh, the, the replacements will have quite a, an effect. Um and uh, as well, there's a long gap to the next appointment. Um, and that, it's six years before Justice Gagler leaves. And I think the next one after that is Justice Gordon um, in, not, in 2034. So this is the last chance for a while, and it's a double. And it includes the Chief. So I think there's a big potential effect. 
Um, that being said, uh, the caveat is that it, they've got to look to a particular pool of judges, and I don't think they can heavily influence the way the court goes. Once they appoint these people, they can go in any direction. Um, I do expect, especially if Labor is in, but probably anyway, that we'll end up, after Justice Keane goes, uh, with a majority female High Court, uh, four judges on the court, and I believe that's the first time that any uh, apex court in the Anglosphere, the English-speaking world, uh, has had majority female court in a full bench. New Zealand briefly got it, but that only happened because they failed to appoint a a replacement once a male judge left for a couple of years um, and they ended up with a female majority court but I think Australia will be the first to do it uh, I would say properly So is it time for an academic to be appointed do you think? Oh it's always time for an academic to be <laughs> but, but I uh, am actually sure it won't happen the only uh, I mean I think we're the moment when that might have happened has passed um, and they're going to go for a standard progression. The only the only way you can get an academic is if the academic becomes a judge uh, and then ends up on the court. We've had um, one of those, um, Justice Hayden uh, at least. Um, actually, I guess you could also say Justice Edelman perhaps. Um, so do you think we're in the midst of a particular jurisprudential trend at the moment, Jeremy, in terms of the High Court's judgments? Uh, I don't know about jurisprudential trends. Um, I think we have to wait and see. The big, tr the big shift at the moment is moving away from joint judgments. I think the the Kiefel era is really coming to a close. Um, and without Keen and Kiefel, I think we're going to see a lot more individual judgments. I know practitioners hate that because they have to sort out what the correct ruling is um, and it's they have to read multiple judgments to work it out. They could be in conflict. Uh, and I get that, but I actually see an upside, which is individual judgments just tend to be much more readable and much more helpful than these joint things, which I think have to be written as a lowest common denominator. So I've, I'm a bit excited that, that we'll see a lot more readable judgments. I really was sad where Justice Bell was on the court. We got to see so little of her individual voice. It was always subsumed. And I think we really missed out. She was such a great judge, but I think we didn't get the best of her on the High Court. So I'm looking forward to seeing the best of, of the, the next batch. Jeremy, tell us about your, I believe it's a now on hiatus blog on the High Court. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, look, we've been doing it since around 2013, um, but it's been on hiatus for a couple of years because we originally planned it as an opportunity for all academics to weigh in on big high court judgments. But in the end, the way it developed was mostly just the editors, Katie Barnett and I, obsessively covering every development in the high court, something I now do on Twitter. So we've asked the law school, what do you want of this blog in the future? Uh, and we're waiting on their response, but the pandemic and a change in deans means we're going to have to wait a while longer. So I've no idea what the future of that blog holds. Uh, it may well bounce right back as a full-blown thing or it might fold, uh, but that hasn't yet been decided. Fair enough. But, you know, if, so, excuse me, Philippe, uh, for jumping in over the top of you here, but you just mentioned Twitter. Is Twitter a good substitute? You're a very active tweeter. Yeah, look, I'm a huge fan of Twitter. Um, I think it's terrific. And um, it, it does allow me to carry out my obsession of, of covering every single moment of the High Court. Um, it also, I think, does something I'd hoped to do with the blog and did do a bit, which was to engage a bit with the media. Um, so I, I'm always keen to make sure that the media, when they're reporting on legal things, especially criminal law, aren't making mistakes or what I see as mistakes. So I think that's um, a really great effect for academics to get on there uh, and be 
uh, saying things that the media otherwise might not be aware of. It doesn't mean that they'll quote me, uh, but I think it changes how they report things and they, they lift their game a bit uh, at times. So do you know whether judges read your blog or follow you on Twitter? Do you get any kind of inside info in terms of your influence there? You hear things. Um, I know one judge must have followed me somehow on Twitter because that's um, Justice Weinberg. In his Pell dissent, he cites in a footnote a few cases I mentioned without saying where I mentioned them, but these are cases I only mentioned on Twitter. So I'm pretty sure that's that's a clear case of that judge at least hearing what I'm saying on Twitter. I don't know who else follows, though. Um, and I had heard that uh, opinions on high got a mention in a high court hearing, albeit one which was not a public hearing uh, once. Um, so I know at least one judge has at least, again, got, got hold of the blog somehow. They were all aware of it. Um, the law school let them know what we were doing. And I'd be very surprised if um, relevant things from that blog didn't end up on someone's desk at some point. Um, whether they liked it or not is a more complex issue. <laughs> so what were your thoughts on Trump being taken off Twitter? Um, and secondly, and maybe it's actually the same question, thoughts on Elon Musk uh, taking over Twitter? Good, bad, indifferent? I suspect it is the same question. You know, that's going to be a big change uh, if Trump comes back. I mean, I found Trump's tweets to be uh, a source of constant hilarity um, in that they're just so exceptionally weird and funny um uh, but it and i was a bit horrified when he was taken off i just don't like the idea of any major politician no matter how egregious they are being booted off um a major platform uh and i like everyone i i figured they couldn't keep that up if he was the nominee in 2024 but that being said he has suddenly become a much less influential guy ever since he was kicked off twitter so um i'm a bit torn um because he is a bit of a malign force and he really has no outlet now um, that anyone listens to. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really torn on it. But, um, of course, it's, uh, it's in Elon Musk's hands now. And I'm, he's made it clear that he's only going to um, limit speech on Twitter if the law requires it. So he's, uh, I don't know how he's going to handle different legal systems. But uh, that's a much narrower test. And I think it's very unlikely that any of Trump's tweets would be regarded as a breach of especially U.S. law. Yeah, with you know, First Amendment is the is the is the freedom of speech the First Amendment? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There you go. So should we move to rule of law? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a pretty big question, but how healthy is the rule of law in Australia right now? Oh, yeah. That's a, it. Is a big question. I mean, I think the the general answer is it's going totally fine. In that we don't sit around worrying all the time that. Uh, laws are being flouted or courts are being uh, are making their decisions on political grounds. And I think that's a contrast to a lot of other countries. But that there are worries. Um, I, I have a bit of a worry that there's a bit of a blurring between politics and law just in the way everyone expects issues to be solved. So you might have a, a hard political issue that the law can't solve. And rather than just accepting that the law can't do anything and this will become a political issue, people try and wedge the law into it. So I think we've seen occasions where that's happened. And at the same time, we also have political things um, uh, or non-legal things, things without process rights attached, um, someone doing a report or something, which which gets treated as if it's some sort of quasi-judicial judgment. I think those are unfortunate developments, though I think they're a long way from a crisis for the rule of law. Um, these are just niggles at the edge as far as I'm concerned. 
So do you think, Jeremy, that very draconian anti-terrorism laws and search and seizure laws and all these things that we've seen, I guess, in the last 20 years or so, do you think they're threats to the rule of law or are they something else that might be criticised on policy grounds but don't really pose rule of law issues? Like how broad oh, would you it? I wouldn't class them as rule of law issues, though. I think it all ultimately depends on how they play out. They can they can evolve in a way which becomes a force in itself. But what I, I think we often see in Australia is judicial backlash. Um, so we get laws passed. They might well get upheld in constitutional terms, but eventually the courts get sick of them and start reading them in ways which limit their effectiveness. And so there's, there's plenty of terrible laws that get passed and then aren't applied ultimately, say, by the police because they just know it's more trouble than it's worth. I, an example of that is the the increased use of compelled questioning during criminal investigations. Um, and the courts largely upheld that as constitutional. Um, but at the same time, it keeps creating, they keep creating roadblocks down the track when a prosecution comes after someone has been compulsorily questioned. And it, it doesn't stop those things, but I think it, it achieves what everyone wants, which is that these laws are, are used by the police and others relatively sparingly. I mean, I can't say I'm totally enthusiastic about either the laws or their uses, but I do think that the ability of them to become runaways is at the moment being constrained by judicial backlash. So again, that's a, uh, that's that's why I'm pretty upbeat about the rule of law. I, I kind I like the interchange at the moment between um, politics and the courts, and I think they keep each other in check for now. Jeremy, I think you touched on this already a little bit, but just coming back to commissions of inquiry, ICACs, things that appear to be law, legal proceedings, but aren't really legal proceedings. Do you think that that has an effect on sort of, of the, on the rule of law? Does it undermine it in a way or does it affect it in any way? Yeah, I, I guess that's part of what I had in mind as a potential problem. Um, I've been pretty vocal in, um, in the current debate about corruption commissions saying that I think the ICAC, the New South Wales ICAC model has too many problems. I don't like that it's effectively a police investigation that's happening with full on powers in public. And I think it's hard for anyone to not see it as, as a quasi course, indeed a, a more over, an overpowered course. Um, I, so I tend to favour the idea that, yes, you might need to give superpowers to investigators in some situations. But if you do that, there's a, a, a compromise, which is that you keep that well clear of the public and the criminal justice system. Uh, that's, I think, more or less the Victorian approach. So uh, there's a lot of devils in the details. I could, uh, I've had to occasionally tell journalists at length about the difference between use immunity and derivative use immunity, and that's not exactly something that can translate into political debate. But I think that's where the cracks start to form, is where you start to allow these bodies that are so souped up um, to interact with both the public and the criminal justice system. Uh, I, I want to keep them separate from all that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. If you go back to the original New South Wales ICAC when Griner introduced it into Parliament, he was basically saying, we're doing this in lieu of a trial and there won't mm. be a trial after we've had this process. And we've sort of... Now we get this effectively a show trial followed by a trial with the compelled speech and all the publicity. It just seems unfair to me. We have. And we, there's a version of that which happens outside of that process too, which is where 
the media does a sort of intensive investigation and then later on there's a trial. Um, and that's, that's, as we all know, going to be trouble. I think it's also an area where the courts, I mean, the courts pushed back on ICAC pretty hard. Um, IBAC less hard, the Victorian version. Uh, and I think they're going to push back pretty hard when the media does a full-on trial ahead of a criminal law trial. Um, it, it's hard to say no to the media investigating things that seem to be neglected, but ultimately there's got to be a cost to that in the ability of the legal system to cope with it. And it seems like all of this has happened at the same time that abusive process doctrine has moved away from giving permanent stays for publicity prejudice, for example, doesn't it? So yeah, okay, okay. We're going to see that tested in, in, in coming times. But, yeah, mm. I, I, I was a fan of the abuse of process doctrine and was disappointed when it, it, it faded away in the last couple of decades. Uh, I think it's got a lot of space to go. And when you look to other jurisdictions, again, Canada and the UK are good examples there, they've been much more robust in their approach. And I think that's, that's again, it's a point where the courts can push back. Even though the courts don't typically use abuse of process these days, instead what they do is I think they give some of these troubling cases closer scrutiny when it comes to an appeal, if there's a conviction. I think we've seen some of that. Um, at the end of the day, I think um, everyone knows the courts can push back one way or another and we will eventually, it may take a very long time and a, a lot of angst in the process, we'll see that push back uh, for some of these cases. Mm. All right, can I, can I pivot to sort of a different topic, Jeremy? The, I think a, a lot of our listeners are lawyers and, or student, and students looking to become lawyers but don't really have and I don't really have an understanding of what it means to be an academic lawyer and sort of what, the average, what your average day would be like. Um, and I wondered whether you might just give, it an insight, give us an insight into that. It's a tricky issue for me because um, my family would tell me, perhaps even my law faculty would tell me that I, my average day is too much on Twitter and not enough doing academic work. <laughs> um, but oh, look, um, the heart of the heart of academic work is teaching. I, I mean, it's so underrated, and people talk about research all the time. But teaching is the fun bit for me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I've got a couple of courses I teach, which I regard as innovative and fun. Um, and you know, I'm teaching an evidence course right now, which is all about a US murder trial where we follow it from start to end. It's, it's been featured in documentaries and the like and a, a coming drama called The Staircase. Um, and it's, it's just show. so much fun to, to dig into a case and to spend time with students. I spend, you know, 30 hours with them talking about a case. That's just great fun um, and explaining evidence law at the same time. So that, that's the highlight of the job for me. The research is fine, though um, I always found that the problem with academic research is you publish in some journal which like five people read um, or maybe maybe at most 100 people read uh, and that's a very poor way of communicating. Um, so that's why I've shifted over to social media and I, I also do some writing for online magazines because they just you reach so many more people that way. Uh, I think ultimately university is going to hit a bit of a crunch where um, the idea of publishing to a tiny group is just not going to be a viable model. Um, so uh, I, I still write things and do proper proper articles, um, but I do a lot less than I could. And I'm always up front to the university that actually I'm, I'm shifting to other things. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt like there are things out there in the academic world that would be really useful to me as a barrister in, in criminal law, but I just... I really don't know where to get them, short of reading a whole bunch of journals all the time, which I just don't have time to do. So, 
it's a yeah, shame. it's a tricky thing. Mm. It's a tricky thing for an academic to be useful to practitioners because often what I'm doing is some sort of carping critique. I say, here's a here's a law. It's badly drafted. It could mean this crazy thing, but really courts shouldn't read read it that way. They should read it in this better way. But it's really the legislature's fault that they can't, mm. and that doesn't help any practitioner because none of you want to use um, my view of how it could be read because I I lodge in a. a a criticism, either that that's a bad reading or that it's um, uh, a reading which is contrary to the statute. So it doesn't help practitioners. The kind of, at least the kind of work I do is more complaining about the production of the law than it is about the, the coalface stuff. So um, and there might be other academics out there who are more useful to practitioners, but I, I've got my limits there, unfortunately. So I think the first time I came into contact with you, Jeremy, was when you wrote an article um, on Dixon and the Queen, which oh, was a case yeah. on 109 inconsistency, and it was extremely useful. It was very correct, and I sought <laughs> to apply it in a matter uh, that Felicity and I were involved in that mm-hmm. went Not, all the way nine judges that to a special leave application, and we lost, <laughs> we lost in front of nine judges. And um, yep. I won't confirm whether our counsel told us that we were ultimately correct, um, even though nine judges disagreed. <laughs> so you were very useful in a very correct way, but we didn't ultimately get the result. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, it's great to hear I was useful, but that's an example of what I had in mind. Basically, my article was, here's a crazy high court judgment. Boy, are they dumb. And if you read this in this, if you read them literally, it will have this massive effect, but that would be crazy too. Yep, and, and there were lawyers so, crazy enough to try to actually argue that. <laughs> oh, rightly so. Um, but, yeah, it, it didn't surprise me in the end the High Court wouldn't stick to its its um, words. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I reckon that, you know, that kind of attempt to use Dixon was totally consistent with what the High Court said in Dixon, but it doesn't surprise me that the, the courts eventually said, no, nah, can't mean that, including the High Court. Yeah, they reserved over morning tea mm, on the special leave application. Win, didn't we? The 15 minutes we got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I mean, they're out the back one. saying, look, they're right, but we better down them. <laughs> one interesting thing about Dixon it was, is that it was a unanimous joint judgment written in three weeks flat. And then a mm. year later, they produced Momchilovich, the opposite, um, multiple judgments contradicting what they previously said with only one judge sticking to the original judgment, and that's Justice Hayne. That's the kind of thing that makes me speculate about who wrote the original judgment and the downsides of these joint judgments. Mm. If the other six ultimately didn't agree with it, they should have spent longer on that first judgment. Mm. Mm. So we've spoken a bit about human rights. Uh, can we talk a bit about non-human rights? I understand that you've yeah. recently published a book on animal law. Yeah, yeah, with Katie Barnett, who we, we did the blog, the Opinions on High blog together. Um, so, yeah, we, we just had a, a joint interest in explaining all bits of the law and animal law. There's some other topics that are a bit like this, sports law, computer law, is a good sort of umbrella subject to explain how a lot of regular bits of law torts and criminal law and admin law and evidence work so that's what we did in that book it's a we're now called animal law experts but we're not really we're just regular law experts who have an interest in animals um <laughs> so um a lot of fun to write that book though and we, it was great to also have a good publisher here in australia who who did a great job putting that book together um but um but my interest there was really exploring how criminal law works with, with animals and actually also especially evidence law. There's some great evidence law about animals out there that um, I had no idea about until I started writing that book. 
Yeah, interesting. For our listeners, it's Guilty Pigs, The Weird and Wonderful History of Animal Law. And Jeremy, where can our listeners pick up a copy of that book? You can pick it up in regular bookshops. Um, this is the first. I, I wrote a book previously, which was with a UK publisher, and you could only get it online. But uh, I've had the delightful thing of walking into bookstores and seeing it there on the shelf. So, um, yeah, you can get it in regular bookstores or you can buy it um, cheaper in an ebook form, just on Kindle or whatever. Do, do I take it from the title that they used to try pigs? That's exactly it. Yeah, um, that was a medieval practice, not in English-speaking systems, but in medieval continental Europe. They tried pigs. They also tried weevils mm. um, and the like. Um, fascinating area. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to know. I find historical research a little challenging in that you can't really put yourself in the mind of people in the 16th century. Uh, so I don't quite know what they had in mind when they did this, but... Yeah, uh, there were certainly animals put on trial back then and subject of civil cases. So do you think human rights will be ultimately applied to primates and things like that? I think Spain might have done something in that direction. Yeah, so I don't know about human rights, but I think that there is a genuine avenue out there to to increase uh, a sense of animal rights. Uh, I'm a little bit cynical when you hear about Spain and all that. Every now and then the media does an an article saying, Animals are now sentient in this country and have been recognised as such. And what it always turns out to be is just a, a standard animal cruelty statute which has had a few beefed-up provisions in it. Mm. The ACT has one of those. Um, and I imagine Victoria will get one sooner or later. Uh, and I just see that as just the, the gradual development of what's been happening for 100 years, which is a series of laws designed to be more protective of animals, um, in particular the ban on cruelty, albeit not on otherwise killing animals. Um, But there is one development I'm pretty enthusiastic about, which is in the UK, they now have a parliamentary scrutiny committee, which like the one I advise on human rights, advises the parliament on the impact of any new law on sentient animals. They've got a complex definition of sentience. Um, And I think that's a move that really should happen everywhere. There's no reason why why the, the scrutiny model, at least, shouldn't include some scrutiny of impact on animals. Whether you have to use the formal language or mechanisms of rights law, I think that's trickier. Um, rights law, the rights law has its limits. Um, but um, the, the avenue there is really these sorts of statutes that talk generally about interests or rights without specifying that those interests or rights are human ones. And you can sometimes wedge animal protection into those statutes. So there's there's an attempt in the US to try and apply habeas corpus to an elephant. Um, and that's, uh, I think it's a bit of a stretch, but that's the kind of avenue you can go in the courts. Mm, interesting. interesting. Mm. So let's finish on criminal law and what you see as the biggest issues in that space. Oh, this is a, a grim way to end, but um, look, uh, criminal law... Well, we'll finish with fun things after this then, Jeremy. You can tell us a fun <laughs> thing after you tell us the grim state of the biggest issues in criminal law. Try and law. come up with something fun. All right, so uh, look, I think uh, all of us have the same broad worry with criminal law, which is the overuse of prison. Uh, and mm. it's just hard to look at prison as anything but a net negative. It might be necessary in some cases, but it really should be, like everything else in the coercive end of the state, kept to the barest of minimums. And we just haven't been doing that. And especially depressing thing in my state of Victoria is that Victoria used to be the the, the world leader, or at least the, the leader in the Anglosphere in relatively low imprisonment rates. And it lost all of that within a decade. We doubled our imprisonment rate in a wow. decade. A bit, of, a bit of a fall with the pandemic, but basically a law and order panic and auction happened in politics. And we ended up with 
twice as many prisoners. And that's such a depressing outcome. Mm. And it's so hard to reverse um, once you've done that. Mm. Um, I, 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 I always just listen in amazement when people complain bitterly that someone only got you know, 20 years in prison for some crime. 20 years just seems so much to me. Um, and I look at somewhere like Norway where they have a maximum of 17 years even for the most extraordinarily heinous crimes like that that guy who killed like 70 kids um, on an island. He got 17 years. I mean, I'm sure they'll, they'll deal with him other ways as well. And I, I look in envy at those places and just can't believe that there's people could make arguments that that is too short here in Australia. Mm. Um, I would be winding all that back so much. But of course, all of us know the problem there, which is the politics is just vicious in that area. And no one wants to be a politician who's left bearing the blame if a crime happens, which is what they all worry about. So they, they pass on the risk to others uh, constantly. So that's that's the biggest problem to me. The, the other one that, that worries me, albeit it affects a smaller number, is just how good is the system at preventing or detecting miscarriages of justice? And I think Australia is still very disorganised in its approach to that. Mm. Uh, and again, I look enviously at some other jurisdictions which are more systematic at dealing with that problem. Can you give us some examples? Um, of other jurisdictions. So it's the UK with its Criminal Cases Review Commission, which I think is the the gold standard. The UK people complain about that commission. They don't think it's robust enough, but I look at it with envy that it's just got a rolling remit to investigate, reinvestigate settled criminal cases and then refer them to the Court of Appeal. And I, I think that's the kind of system that any sensible system should have. I mean, in defence of Australia, we do have a robust system of appellate review of decisions, but um, it runs out uh, at a couple of points. One is you only get one go at that, that appellate review. Um, and secondly, um, it's uh, it, it doesn't allow you to reinvestigate older cases very easily. Mm. So something we've talked about on the show quite a bit, Jeremy, is the problems in the summary justice system in terms of disclosure and other aspects of the fair trial, I suppose. Um, and something that we've touched on is this question of whether there's a large amount of undiscovered miscarriages in the summary jurisdiction because of all those mm. shortcomings and the different forms um, of appellate review as well. Is that something that you've got any thoughts on? Oh, look, I, I worry about it like you do. I also worry about the, the guilty plea system and what that produces. Uh, I mean, my upbeat thought is I often look at the US and look at the kind of miscarriages ju justice they have and get some comfort that they can't really happen in that way here. But I think you're right that it's very hard to, to make that call about the summary justice system because it's just so quick uh, and brief and uh, uh, unprotective in its model. So, you know, I worry about it, but I don't, I don't otherwise know the answer to the question of whether and how many, or quickly some are happening, but how many miscarriages are happening in that system. Okay. okay, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. We're just going to hold on to you for a couple more seconds while we finish off on one of our favourite topics of the show. And, um, you know, I know we've uh, chopped and changed your time here and all the technical issues. But can I just let you know and inform you that uh, when we do spit this episode out of production, it will be clear and crystal and, you know, super flowy as 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 I try to try to do. So uh, rest assured in that regard. So while we've got you, we're going to do our our 
favorite episode, our favorite segment of the show, fun things. We're going to start with the smiling man in the room, the man with the biggest grin on his face at the moment, Emmanuel Kirkasherian. What's your fun thing this this episode? I mean, you week? say that because I look exhausted and like death, but yes. in, in 25 hours I will be on a plane to Tasmania oh. for a week or two and I can't wait. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What what's the I'm, good I'm for staying you? I'm at a hotel that has a button that you press and people bring you bread. Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now you're my, talking. my dream. <laughs> what a car bun. Warm bread. Warm bread. Fresh bread. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Fun thing. Yeah. Uh, what you came prepared, sir. I did. Well done, Felicity Graham. What's your fun thing? Uh, I bought my wedding dress today. Oh, oh, Is fun thing. No. Wow. Okay. Um, just over there in the corner. Oh my gosh, it's here! You brought it's here it here in the room in the studio. You, I, oh, wow. It's an audio show only, Flick. We can't. It's, okay. Well, I'm not disclosing any of the details anyway. Okay, not. not have to dis- wait for another fun things to hear about that. Okay, all right. Okay, um, our special guest tonight, Stephen Lawrence. What's your fun thing? <laughs> <laughs> my fun thing is I took two weeks out of court because my son had school holidays, and just spent cool. every day with him, just riding our bikes around the river and. Then it culminated in him marching in the Anzac Day March in Dubbo, That's which is beautiful. Fun. It was really fun. Did he wear your medal? <laughs> he didn't wear my medal. <laughs> he could have worn it on his right chest. <clears throat> you got a medal. Stephen has a medal. <laughs> I have the Operational Service uh, Medal as a civilian. Oh, really? For my Australian Civilian Corps time in Afghanistan. Hey! <laughs> Jeremy Garns, the future replacement of Stephen Lawrence on the Wigs. What is your fun thing? Oh, look, mine's a travel one as well. I'm, I've got a, been waiting out the pandemic because I've got a teenage son who's obsessed with America. Oh, yeah. So I'm off to America in a couple of months. Hell, yeah. His obsession is with small-town America. So we're not going to New York or LA or anything like that. It's Detroit and Dallas and everything in between. <laughs> so awesome. we'll, be, we'll be on Amtrak trains and sitting in diners. That is awesome. Nice. Just like Joe Biden. Well done. He's an yeah, Amtracker, yeah. apparently. Good stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That. Oh. Oh, apparently. So, look. Jimins. Oh, yeah, look, okay. What's your fun thing? I passed all my exams, okay? All that grief that you're giving me over evidence. Jeremy, you'll be happy to know. I know you're an avid listener to the show. Apparently, they, they were giving me grief last episode of my evidence and lack of knowledge. Passed it. 50. What's five the, and oh. What's the hearsay rule? No, I don't want to get into it, Manny. Thank <laughs> sharing. Thank you so much. Everyone, it is so generous of you all to give your time to this show. We really appreciate it. Everybody, enjoy their time off. We'll see you in a month. That was The Wigs, ladies and gentlemen. See you later. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.